Open up your Bibles. Genesis 32, folks. Genesis 32. We are looking, we're about to phase out of the part of Genesis where we have really been embedded in the life of Jacob. We're about to move out of that phase, and then very soon we're going to be moving into the phase of somebody else that perhaps we know a lot more because his story gets talked about a lot more, and that's Joseph, moving into Joseph. So last week in Genesis 31, Jacob had finally left the region of Padan Aran. And so if you're on our map here, you'll see that Aran is up there at the very top there. And um, he's made his way down. And in chapter 32 here, he's made his way down to Peniel right there. You see it in the dark there, the little diamond. And that's where he's arrived when we're here in chapter 32 here today. So Jacob had just spent 20 years serving Laban, his father-in-law. And after those 20 years, most of that time was really marked with a great deal of controversy and strife. And even as you noted, last week we highlighted this in chapter 31, verse 7, where Jacob even says to Laban, he says, you've changed my wages 10 times. In other words, it had just been a very contentious relationship from the wedding night all the way through. And so here here he is, finally graduating from all that and able to get away from there. But while he is leaving all this strife in the past, he's not escaping strife in his future. He's stepping into it. He has unfinished business. You would have to go back all the way to chapter 27. Don't go there. I'm just going to briefly remind you. You'd have to go back to chapter 27 to get all the details. But the cliff note version is that over 20 years ago, Jacob had manipulated his brother, to gain his birthright. You remember that was the whole thing. I'm famished. We'd kind of have some soup. And he says, hey, I'm glad to feed your brother if you give me your birthright. You know, that's just, that's what loving brothers do, right? Okay. And so that's what happened. And then later on, we don't know the time frame, but very soon later on, as Jacob's, um, as Jacob's father was dying or in his old age, again, Jacob and his mother, Rebecca conspire to steal the blessing that belonged to Esau. And so in the aftermath of that deception, Esau pledges to murder his brother, and Rebekah, wanting to protect her favored son, she says, why don't you go and stay with my brother Laban up in Haran? You'll be safe there, find you a good woman, and pretty soon Esau's going to forget about this. I'll send word for you, and you can come home. Twenty years later, to the best of our knowledge, No word. Nothing from mom. Nothing from Esau. No news at all from home. So as he begins this trek back, and as he gets here, as he's about to cross over into his homeland, you know that his mind is thinking about what's waiting for him when he arrives. This literally is kind of like, you know, I mentioned it last week about how parents always say, wait until your father gets home. You know, this, that's how Jacob is kind of viewing this. It's kind of like when he crosses over into the homeland, father's waiting. And it's going to be harsh. It's going to be difficult. And he's unsure what to have there. Now, not father in the sense of, of his father Isaac, but in the sense of like he has something bad looming over him with his brother Esau there. So, There's so much packed in this passage today. I wish we could do all of it. We're not going to. We're going to really touch a few of the high tops of it and and gather some, some 
points that we can grow from and we can use in our daily life. Our text opens up by informing us that Jacob is greeted by angels. Now, it's really interesting to note right there, it says in verse 1, Now, Jacob went on his way, and angels of God met him. And he says, and Jacob says, This must be God's camp, so he named the place Mahanaham. And, and it's interesting to note that in chapter 28, as Jacob was leaving the homeland to go to be with Uncle Laban, Remember what happened there? Angels were also there. They were they they kind of like as he left, angels ministered to him, and not only did angels minister to him, but in that dream that night, God said, in, in essence, he's like going, You're going away, I'll be with you, I'll protect you, I'll bring you back home, I'll take care of you. And you remember what happened out of that. He wakes up. And he, he erects a monument, and he says, if all of this is true, I'm definitely going to serve this God. And so there's two things happen there. God said, God c- continued to convey the covenant to, uh, to Jacob, and Jacob responds by going, I'm going to serve you. So here we are. Jacob is coming home, and in a sense, he's met by angels. And once again, it has to remind him, the last time he was met with angels, he made a promise to God, and God had made a promise to him. So he sends out some scouts. He sends out messengers to find out where his brother is at, what's going on there. You see that in verses four through seven, uh, 2 through 6 there. Um, Jacob sent messengers, 3. Jacob sends messengers before him to his brother Esau. And he says, go and find out what's going on. They come back with not the news that he wanted to hear. You read it right there. In verse 7, they come back. In verse 6, it says, come back. The messengers return to Jacob saying, we found your brother, but he has 400 men with him, and he's headed this way. Verse 7, Jacob's response is great fear and distressed. So Jacob does what Jacob knows to do. Jacob begins to figure out how to connive, how to plan, how to work the situation to his advantage, at least to the best advantage he can manage. He divides the people up, so that one of so that he divides them up in groups, and so really what you, you he's thinking is I'm going to put them in groups, and what's going to happen is if he takes this group, I've got this one left. You see here he's cutting his losses, but you notice that what in all of this planning he's planning for him to not be in that group. His thought is that I'm going to send groups out and and in. And my brother will be attracted by this group that goes out, but I'm going to be with the other one, and, and that's just the way it's going to play. That's how we're going to get home. Some of us are going to make it. Some of us aren't. Well, there's the kind of dad everybody wants, isn't it? All right? But he, he does not only plan, but now he begins to manipulate. Who's the only person to manipulate in this story right now besides Jacob? He hasn't found Esau Esau's not there. He can't manipulate him yet, so he goes to God. And he begins to say to God, okay, all right, listen, listen. I know I'm unworthy. Now then, if you're a parent, you've heard this from your kids. I know I'm unworthy, but you are so good. You are so faithful. You're so full of loving kindness. Verse 10, this is where he's saying all this. You are so full of loving kindness. You are wonderful. I'm so grateful for you, but I'm in this mess because of you. That's what he's saying. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. 
For, and, and he says, and you know what? I went out with only my staff in my hand, and now look what I have. Say, all this is from you. Because deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me, the mothers and the children. Think of the mothers and the children with you. Goodness, think of what's going to happen to them if you don't intervene. Oh, my goodness. You don't want that blood on your hand, God. All those babies. And then he says this. For you said, I will prosper you, and I will make your descendants the number of the sea, and which, is, which is too great to be numbered. And so he spent the night there. And so what he's done here is he said, I'm, I'm here, I'm in this predicament because of you. Because you told me you were going to take care of me. Because I went out, I came back, I got all these babies and all these mamas now, and like, this is what you've done. You're responsible here. But he's not done. He hasn't met Esau yet. So he selects 550 animals. If you do the math, that's what it comes out to, 550, 580, depending on how you do the count. And he begins to send those gifts to his brother. He's devised a plan to manipulate his brother, too, when he does get there. Do you think, think about this. If you go back to the chapters 27, 28 in there, what happened there was that Jacob stole from his brother things that were rightfully his brother's. He stole the birthright. He stole the blessing. You know, and in all that, what it meant was is that the father, what the father had, he was going to give the bulk of it to the older son. And so Esau had this stuff coming to him. It was rightfully his. But Jacob deceived him, manipulated him, took what rightfully was Esau's, and he claimed it as his own. And he did it in such a way that it couldn't be taken back. He was good at what he did. And so now, here he is coming home. Do you think it's possible that by sending all of this wealth of animals ahead of him, he's going, okay, do you remember everything I took from you? Here, here, you can have all of it back. No, not all of it. I, think that, I don't think that Jacob is that genuine or authentic. But he sends enough in front of him that he says, this is a lot, and I'm trying to appease you. He even says that in the, in the passage. In verse 20 here, I believe that's where it's at. He says, he says I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And then afterwards, I will see his face. Perhaps he'll accept me. Note also the position or how he, he positions himself to his brother. In verse 18, he talks about there, he calls himself. And then you will say, these belong, this is what he says to the servants. He goes, when, when you meet Esau and you have all these animals, say to Esau, all of this belongs to your servant. And he, and he says, Lord so you're the, you're the, you, Lord, you, and all of these belong to your servant. So now what had happened was before, when they were born, Esau was the firstborn. Esau was the one who was the top dog. Jacob was the second in line. Jacob stole all that and changed the order. And now as he's coming home, he's changing the order again. Lord, I am your servant. He continues to manipulate. He continues to, to 
fudge. He continues to try and find an angle to win favor. So at this point, I think he's trying to restore what he had taken. He had taken wealth and position. So he gives animals and position back. Now, basically, Jacob is doing exactly what his grandfather and his father had done in the past. When they were afraid, they took matters in their own hands, and they tried to protect and fix. That's what they both did with their wives. That's what Abraham did in Egypt. That's what Abraham did with Abimelech. That's what Isaac did with Abimelech as well. Ah, she's not my wife. She's my sister. It's okay. It's okay. You know? If I'm not sure that God is going to protect me and my wife, I'm going to lie about it and position it in such a way that my sister... Think about this. He's, here's Jacob. He goes, I'm going to take half of everything I own. That means wife and children. Later on, when he does send the family through, he takes the maids, the maids, the, the concubines, and their children. He sends them out front. And then he takes Leah and her children. He sends them in the middle. And then Rachel, the one that he loves, and the children that he loves, he keeps them back at the back. Do you? I mean, like, if you're the maid and those children... You're like going, hi, Mom, why are we in the front? Because Daddy loves the others better, honey, that's why. And yet, you think about it. If you're Abraham and Sarah, and and you go into Egypt, and Abraham says, look, just tell them you're my sister. And so if he takes you as a husband, and he sleeps with you, and he does all kinds of things to you, it's okay. At least I'll be safe. It's a prevalent family attitude. It's a prevalent family behavior. And Jacob is doing what he knew to do. So, Jacob is doing what he's always done. He's managed his life this way to his advantage. He tricked his brother twice. He tricked his father. He finally outwits his boss Laban. And now he comes to face to face with the only living adversary that he has outstanding issues with. He and Laban had agreed to a non-aggression policy, remember? They had mounted, they'd come together and they'd come to an agreement and they gathered the stones and they had the monument and they said, this monument serves as a witness that I will not cross over and you will not cross over and we are good. We're done with each other. Neither of us are going to cross back over in each other's space again. But Esau, Esau is still left. Verse 24 introduces another twist in our story. When Jacob was left alone, a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Do you think at first that perhaps there in the darkness of the night that Jacob is woken up by this man who begins to assault him and Jacob must think that that Esau has sent an assassin. Or maybe, perhaps, it wouldn't be on the realm of, realm of possibility that Laban says, yeah, I know I set up this monument. I know I said I wasn't going to cross over. I didn't cross over. I sent someone else to do my dirty work. And, and all Jacob knows is he is being accosted here in the dark by a man. But as the night goes on, he begins to understand that his adversary is not just a mere man. And a matter of fact, Jacob was mistaken because Esau was not the obstacle. Esau was not the hurdle that he had to overcome to get back in the homeland. The hurdle he had to overcome was God himself. As you know, I feel that 
we have to deal with questions that are always most on our minds in our text. Even though sometimes those questions are not always pertinent to the exact outcome of the text or the application of the text. But if you're, if me, again, I'm just, I'm just kind of work through the questions I have as I go through the text. So I probably am not the only one in this room who's like going, okay, so Jacob wrestled with God and, and Jacob won. How does that happen? I thought God was supreme. I thought God was powerful. I thought he was a creator. And now Jacob defeats him in a wrestling match. What happened? Well, think about this, because if you look at the text here, let's read it. Verse 24, he was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And he said to him, let me go, for the day is breaking. And he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And in verse 28, and he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. The text never says that he defeated God. Instead, the text says that God was not defeated by Jacob. It says he prevailed. It only says that God was not overcome by Jacob. So you think about this and say, well, are you saying, what are you saying then? Well, think about this. Dan made a great point in communion that I didn't pick up on in my studies, which is not uncommon. But anyway, Dan made a great point. And he, he, he brought our attention to the fact that Christ humbled himself before men, although he was sovereign. Even Christ says himself, could I not call legions down right now to protect me? So put away your sword. Christ humbled himself, so in that moment, he suffered the death that each and every one of us owed. Philippians 2 says he humbled himself to the point of being man, to the point of death. And so it is not unthinkable then to consider that in this case, God humbled himself in a manner similar, that he prevailed with Jacob through this incident. It's kind of like this. Have you ever thought about this? You, you talk about having an, an energetic dog, right? And you're going to take Rover on a walk. And you're going to take him on a walk. But nevertheless, Rover is, is you know, he's going to lead the walk. We used to have a dog named Buck. Buck very often was walking us. But Buck was always on the leash. Just like this dog is here. And so while it has every appearance that that dog might be leading that man and Buck might have been leading us, at the end of the day, that leash was always on Buck and we always ended up back at home. I would venture to say that this is somewhat the same kind of thing where God was always in control and God always knew how this was going to end, regardless of the fact that Jacob prevailed against him. Jacob was always on the leash, and there was no doubt that where their walk was going to end. And so it is this episode, it's this wrestling match, that Jacob really steps into the covenant role that God had been talking about ever since Genesis 15, ever since Genesis 12. And he goes from being the one who would trip others up, that was his name. You remember, he came out of the womb hanging on to Esau's heel. And his name literally meant heel grabber, or literally meant the one who would trip others. His name means, I'm going to lie to you, basically. 
And you think about that, and she goes, hi, this is my husband. He's going to lie to you. There you go. There you go. Are you th- can you think about you as a father-in-law going, walking down your, your daughter down the aisle going, hi, I'm marrying my daughter off to the guy who's going to lie to me and lie to her. There we go. This is the kind of guy everyone's wanting for in, their, in their family, right? And yet it's in this episode that he goes from being that guy to becoming God's man. He goes from being the one who would trip up others to being the one who knelt limps for the rest of his life. Do you get that? Scripture is full of that kind of stuff, and Genesis is full of that kind of stuff. Here he comes from the one who would trip up others to the one who will always limp now. And in that moment that God dislocated Jacob's hip, Jacob was the loser in life for the first time. He couldn't negotiate for a better situation like he did with Laban. He was helpless against the wrestling opponent, and all he could do was just clinch his opponent and just hang on. That's all he could do. To which he finally says, the, uh, the, God says, the angel there, the, this, this wrestling opponent says, let me go for the dawn is breaking. All the commentators say, well, why is that important? Is he going to melt? Is this like a vampire kind of thing? Is this a zombie thing? What is this? Right? And no, he's like going, because you see, no man's ever seen my face. And so you, we need to stop this right now. Because if you see my face, you will die. So let me go. Well, Jacob is Jacob. And Jacob chooses to try and negotiate still. And he says, I'll let you go. I won't let you go until you bless me. He's still negotiating, man. And so his name is changed. And that name change, when that happens, Jacob steps into the role that God has always intended for him to have as the descendant of Abraham, the father of the nation, would scatter over the earth to bless all the nations and be as many as the stars, as many as the sand, as much as the sand on the shore. That's who Jacob becomes when that name changes to Israel. That's who Jacob was supposed to be from the beginning. And in that lonely night, as he waited in the fear of his brother, God appears in the form of a man. And like he had done with Abraham. Do you remember? And Ab- with Abraham, Abraham sitting in the door of his tent and three men appear. And, and Abraham tends to them. And he serves them. And they tell him, that's when they told him, he says, we're leaving now, we've got to go because we're going down to Sodom and Gomorrah to punish them with, for the judgment they deserve. That was... The, the three men, that was God and man form coming to visit Abraham. And now God had done the same thing with Jacob. And he begins the transformation that Jacob had gone, had gone through to become Israel, the father of God's people. So as the day breaks, Jacob finds that Esau is arriving. Chapter 33, verse 1. As he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men were with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. Here we are again. This is that thing we mentioned already. And he says, okay, um, the maids, I don't remember your names and your children. Y'all go up front. And then, um, let me see, Leah. Leah, you can go in the middle. That'd be fine. And Rachel, you stay back here with me and the two boys, you know, with Joseph, all right? So he divides them up. But the thing is, this is what I think is a little bit of a character change for Jacob. Instead of sending them all forward, all of a sudden, after that night's wrestling match, he goes in front of them. So you have to give Jacob some credit. There's a change that's begun to happen here because he would have stayed behind prior to that tonight's wrestling match. 
But now after the wrestling match, he divides them all up, and then he goes in front of them. And it says that he passed on ahead of them, and he bowed down on the ground seven times until he came near his brother. Now, pay attention that the attack and the vengeance of the angry brother that Jacob had been so worried about never, ever showed up. Instead, it was a brother who had gone through his own change. And Esau comes and he demonstrates the essence of the grace of God in verse 4, chapter 33. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. How, How similar is this? to Luke chapter 15, verse 20, and the story of the prodigal son, where the son, we talked about this last week, where the prodigal has begun to come home, and he's coming home thinking, I I can't be a son anymore, but I can be a servant in my own father's house, and even they get paid better than what I've been doing. And so he's on his way home, and it says, the text there on the screen says, "And, and but while he was still a long way away, the son, while the son was still a long way away, the father saw him as was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him, and he kissed him. This is not the only time we're going to read this kind of reception either, because later on when we read about Joseph and Joseph's reunion with his brothers, we find again a very tender very emotional reunion there as well of weeping and joy and kissing. Esau didn't want the gifts. He didn't want the wealth. He was satisfied with the brother, the one who had cheated and lied in so many ways and crushed his heart. The kindness of Esau is really compelling, isn't it? When you remember, back in chapter 28, when you remember the emotion of Esau, the weeping with his father. And he says, Father, do you not have anything left for me? Anything at all, Father, give me something. And the anger and the hatred that came out of that for Jacob. And now here we are. And that has been gone. That has been obliterated. That is in the past. And now when Esau greets his brother Jacob, there's total forgiveness. There's total grace. Nothing that Jacob anticipated or expected. There is just so much in the passage, but I wanted to leave us with some encouragement from some of it that will be food for our souls. It is our nature. It is our nature. We are people of action. We want to be able to do something, to accomplish something, to be able to say, I did this. You know? And just like a child that proudly shows an adult their most prized drawing and wants to make sure that you know they drew it and wants to make sure that you take note of their outstanding skills. But we know it's just a child's drawing. And the most worth it will ever have is really in the child themselves or in the artist themselves. And that is exactly the way it is for us. When we try to produce our own blessings and we try and manage our life by our own effort, by our own skill. And Jacob had worked and deceived others in his life in order to bless himself. But in chapter 33, twice he acknowledges that it was God who blessed him. In verse 5 he says, these children, all these children here, God gave them to me. Verse 11 he says, God has dealt generous, graciously with me and because I have plenty. And so 
Jacob has come to the realization that he is helpless in this wrestling match and that God is going to take care of him no matter what. And that God is going to accomplish his purpose no matter what. And that it was God all along who was watching out for him and blessing him and taking care of him. It is just like us. I mean, it is so easy to throw stones at someone else's story and say, I'm not like that. But the fact of the matter is, is that we are like that. And so anytime we think that we are missing out, are losing out, anytime that we think that we are getting something, we're not getting something that we want or need, we are just like Abraham who says, ah, she's just my sister. We are just like Jacob who will trade a bowl of soup for birthright. We are just like anyone, we are just like the people that are sitting next to us who would take matters in our own hands to try and make sure that the, 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 the things of this world will benefit us. That's who we are in our essence. We are people who would try and turn circumstances to benefit us. And yet, we see here that God was already moving Jacob had a plan. He was going to try and make sure he could appease, could appease his brother Esau, and yet God had already done it. And he didn't need to appease Esau. He didn't need to spend perhaps years, I don't know, but definitely those last few months worrying about what he was going to find when he arrived home and found Esau there. He didn't have to worry about that. Jacob realized that he was helpless. And when he realized that he was helpless, that's when God blessed him. So this is my question to us. Doesn't it take a lot for us to admit we're helpless? Jacob, by this time, some say he was 99 years old before he admitted he was helpless for the first time. And it was in that moment that he didn't have to bless himself. He didn't have to lie. He didn't have to manipulate. He didn't have to deceive. He didn't have to look out for his own interest. Because in the moment that he admitted he was helpless, God blessed him. God blessed him. God blessed him. Church, God is waiting for us to come to him and say, I'm helpless with this situation. I need you. God is waiting for us to come to him and say, I fought all I can, and I don't know how to do anymore. God is waiting for us to come and say, this mess that I've made, or this mess that is falling down upon me, I'm, I'm done. I don't know what to do with it. And in that moment of coming and, and like opening up your hands and, and letting loose of it, it's in those moments where he steps in and says, I'm glad to find you here. Now let me fix this. Let me bless you. Let me take care of this. And it's in that moment where Jacob sees God, God blessed him and he didn't have to do it himself. It's in that moment where he begins to just make this change. And his character has begun to become, be transformed. And so some of us 
are probably disillusioned with our faith and with our spiritual walk because we're like going, it just doesn't seem like it's clicking. It just doesn't seem like things are just happening just right. It doesn't seem like it's meshing together. And maybe, is it possible, it's because we're trying to manage it ourselves instead of taking our hands off of it and saying, God, you do this. And then when he does it, we go, wow, God's really amazing. Who knew? If we're disillusioned, if we're tired, if we're unsure about how this God thing works, then try taking your hands off of it. Try trusting him with that circumstance in your life, that situation in your life, and see what comes of that. And find him to be faithful like he says he is. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and I come to you admitting that I too am Jacob, that I too am constantly trying to manage my circumstances in my family, my wife, my kids, my staff, my friends, everything. I'm trying to do these things and try to manage them in so many different ways. And then when I'm all done, I'm tired and I'm disillusioned, and I'm frustrated, and I wonder why this isn't always working. Where are you? And it's because I was trying to do it myself, and I was hanging on to my circumstances more than I was just hanging on to you. Lord, help us all to realize how much we're hanging on to life instead of hanging on to you. And allow us to let you be big in our lives. Allow us to let you be God in our lives allow you to let us, allow you to to change us in the way that you want to. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.